Hi, I'm Daniel Strauss, and you are listening to Inside Position. Sacrifices. You gotta make sacrifices with your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is none other than the Raspberry Ape, Daniel Strauss. Dan has so much experience competing at the highest level of the game. It was great to have a chat with him about everything from the early days of his career, qualifying for ADCC at the age of 19 when he was only a purple belt. We also touched on his unconventional but effective approach to strength and conditioning and also grip training, as well as much more. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends and subscribe to avoid missing future episodes. Here we go with another episode of Inside Position with Daniel Strauss. Hi, Dan. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. My pleasure. The first time I came across you, I think, was re-watching ADCC 2011 years and years and years ago. And I thought it was pretty cool at the time seeing an English guy at ADCC. I was like, oh, shit, maybe I could do that, too, in the future. And then I realized that you were very young doing it and you hadn't been training that long. How did that come about and how did you end up qualifying for ADCC when you were only maybe, what was it, 20 years old? Yes, I believe that I qualified maybe when I was 19. I was a purple belt, I think, and I was 19 when I qualified for ADCC. Uh, You know, at the time I was, uh, yeah, so I'd been training for what, four or five years. But, you know, I was was getting more into no-gi competition at the time. And yeah, you know, I had the opportunity, obviously ADCC is this, ADCC is the Olympics of grappling. Yeah, for whatever reason, I went out to, um, I was crazy enough to go out to compete in the trials. The trials there were in Turku, I believe it is. It might have been somewhere else, but they were in Finland. And I flew out there by myself. I think, I'm not sure if I had competed. Uh, I had sort of traveled and competed by myself before, but it might have been the first time. And obviously to a pretty crazy place, somewhere that I'd never been, Scandinavia. Uh, It was mad because, you know, I remember waking up at like, one in the morning thinking it was the proper morning going looking outside the window the sun's up <laughs> but it's one in the morning that was pretty trippy uh but yeah yeah I rocked up and I, and I went to the tournament almost had a little bit of a problem because it was under 77 which I was you know I, I was 77 kilos it wasn't an issue and I was checking my weight all the time as as you do when you grapple and um the hotel that I was staying in was actually the same literally the same building that the tournament was taking place in so the tournament was taking place in like a convention room in the hotel if I'd been staying in a different hotel I don't think I ever would have qualified and I'll, I'll explain why now so they they had a rules meeting in the morning and one of the cool things about uh, they, some of them, I've been to a few trials, some of them not so much, but the, that trials anyway, there was no novice divisions. There were no masters divisions. There was just like seven divisions or whatever it is, like two women's divisions and five men divisions. And that's it. So everyone there is, you know, if they're the same weight, they're competing with you. And we had the rules meeting in the morning and then I checked my weight and my weight was like 70, maybe 78 it was over. And the division isn't 77, it's 76.9. And they said that. They said it's 76.9. It's not 77. You weigh 77, it's not happening. So I was like, oh dear. So my scales were basically a kilo off to their scales anyway. Which one was right? I'm not sure. So I go upstairs, I strip off, I get the shower on, and I basically try and make like a sauna in the bathroom. 
And it's taken a little while. I think I had maybe an hour and a half till my weigh-ins. So I was kind of shitting it a little bit at this point that I wasn't going to make weight. So I remember I wasn't really sweating much just in the room. So what I ended up doing was like crawling between the space, between the wall and the shower, the water, because I didn't want to get wet. I didn't want to get, you know, the water in my body. I just wanted the heat. So I remember just, you know, probably half an hour before I was going to set to compete at the trials, I remember just crushed between the water behind me and the wall trying to sweat as much as i could uh eventually about five minutes before i was due to to weigh in or maybe even less than that i ran downstairs uh i wasn't actually wearing any underwear this is i don't even think i've ever said this before but to to save on weight because you couldn't you had the weigh in and what you were wearing so to save on weight i didn't have any underwear <laughs> under my bad boy shorts <laughs> And I weighed in and didn't have time to rehydrate. They literally weighed me in uh, 76.9 and walked me around to the first match. And luckily I got that match over and done with very quickly. And I was able to rehydrate and chill out a little bit. But yeah, it was it was a really, really good day. It was a good day competition wise. Um, I had five matches, I believe. And I submitted everyone except for one person in my semi-final match. I won on points. Uh, but I definitely felt like, yeah, you're you're right. At the time, obviously, I I I I may be incorrect. I know that there have been other Brits that have competed at ADCC, but I believe that I may have been the first ever Brit to qualify to compete at ADCC. I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but to my knowledge, I am the first Brit to ever qualify to compete at ADCC. Yeah, that's amazing record, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty In cool, itself. right? It's pretty cool. And uh, I, th- I believe I was 19 at Purple about the time. And I remember they, they didn't want they didn't want the Brits to win. Because I remember the only, uh, you know, I was lucky I submitted almost all of my competitors or my opponents. I remember the semi-final. Um, I was up on points. And I think they ended up, I was going against a, a Scandinavian guy. And we ended up going... Uh, like maybe a minute or a minute and a half over the time limit to see if I I believe to see if they were going to, that he was going to manage to get any points back. Uh, but they definitely ran over the time. Luckily he wasn't able to do that. Uh, and yeah, I, I managed to qualify for ADCC, which was a, which was a really cool experience. Um, it was something that, um, you know, obviously a big dream of mine to compete at ADCC and I was privileged enough to, to then compete in, you know, get get an all expenses paid trip to Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> all of the other ones. <laughs> I feel bad now that I went to LA instead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So all of the other ones um, were like Barcelona yeah. and LA and Abu Dhabi and all of these other places. And I got that. But you know what? If I could have had it any other way, um, I wouldn't have changed it, to be honest with you. I think having it in... Uh, Having it in, 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 in with the hometown is as good as it gets. You know, my actual ADCC uh, performance was not awesome. Uh, I was because obviously, as you know, they uh, they seed the invites with the um, with the trial winners. So I got Claudio Calazans as my first match and uh, and he beat me up pretty quickly. Uh, but yeah, it was it, it was an insane experience to be around. You know, I was warming up. You know, I was warming up on the mat with Marcelo Garcia. <laughs> you know, it was it was pretty crazy, and, and and you know, not just Marcelo, but all of those incredibly high level guys. So I think Mar- I'm sure Marcelo was competing. Maybe he wasn't. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, think he, he was. won that year. Yeah, yeah, he did win that year. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was the 
Yeah, there was there was literally every single person who was somebody in, in jiu-jitsu was at that tournament. It's hard to remember. And I'd say at the time as well, those kind of guys were probably more mythical than they are now. They're more accessible now with social media and more travel and everything. But I'd say back in the day, you couldn't even imagine. Yeah, it was it, it was insane. Absolutely. You know, I remember, um, I think I've told the story on my podcast, maybe, or maybe I haven't. Uh, but I remember on the Sunday after the second event, of the second obviously every all of the fighters were staying in the same hotel and um i was there with my buddies and we went out you know looking to go grab some drinks or something but everyone was closed it was a sunday so we come back to the hotel bar and it was Rodolfo vieira's birthday i think he was maybe like 21 or 22 or something but basically there was a party in the lob in the uh bar at the hotel and when i tell you that every single person who is anyone in grappling was there I mean it. I'm talking Henzo Gracie's behind the bar pouring his own pints. You know, Hicks and Gracie's, Hicks and Gracie's there getting his drink on. You know, I remember <laughs> at one point, because uh, um, obviously that was the ADCC where where uh, Torquino was wrecking everyone and uh, he was kind of this larger than life crazy character with his big hugs and his slaps and his crazy heel hooks. And um, I remember that, uh, who was it? It was, I think, like Vieira carries in like was Jeff there Jeff Monson was there I think he was it was just something crazy and then they, they slipped on some beer on the ground and he throws a hill hook and everyone's chanting Torquino you know it was just crazy and Torquino was there with uh with with Marco Huas who was his coach at the time it was a super crazy event and that was the craziest of all of them watching all those guys get shit faced in the bar yeah that's probably one of the most epic ADCCs when I think back on it that's Stuart Cooper highlight. I still watch it sometimes with my pre-training coffee. Just throw it on and then you're immediately in the zone. Again, seeing all those guys and seeing Tokino just be scary to everyone as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was an awesome event, you know. It was, uh, uh, you know, Galval killed it. It was Jacare versus Braulio, um for the super fight. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good event. It was a long time ago now. It was 10 years ago. It's crazy. And did that do anything for Jiu-Jitsu in the United Kingdom? Like, how was the scene back then maybe compared to now? Because you've been training there for the past maybe 15, 16 years. I was wondering, how have you seen a change in that time? Yeah, it's it's a really good question as to whether having ADCC in the UK helped it at all. It's hard, you know, obviously it couldn't have hurt it. I don't think it helped it much, to be honest with you. I think grappling, it's such a niche sport that the only people would have known about it would have been people who were already doing They're it. They're already doing it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is a good question. And, and, and we'll never really know the effects. But, um, oh, the jiu-jitsu is completely different now to how it was back then. Uh, I believe that there were, I may, I think that maybe there were a thousand people there. Maybe, maybe not even that. If ADCC was running in, in the UK now, you could really pack a lot of people into an arena, I think. You know, not as much as if you were having it in in america obviously but it would be very very different to how it was 10 years ago yeah the scene is very different you know the number of high level competitors that we have the number of people that are qualified for adcc such as yourself um kind of if if we steal you and bring you in with sort of the uk and ireland lot you, you know uh but yeah you know the, the the scene is very very different we have so many high level grapplers coming up now and it's cool to see yeah. And then moving on from that ADCC, did that give your career a big boost? Like what was your next step after that? Were you aiming then for the black belt level? Like how did it change your mentality? 
I, I think at that point, I'd already decided that I was going to sort of pursue uh, grappling, you know, and, 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 and competing as a grappler professionally or as high level as I could. So for me, that that was kind of just a that that was something that was just meant to happen. And it happened, you know, I don't think it changed that much in terms of uh, my popularity. I think the the trials winning the trials was a much obviously a much bigger deal than you know, I didn't, I didn't smash it. I didn't do a Craig Jones or anything at the ADCC and kind of come out of nowhere. So uh, winning the trials and just being able to compete on that stage was something that I was really happy to do. Uh, and I felt that it was, you know, it, 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 it gives you a bit of assurance that you're, you know, I qualified for the biggest tournament in the world. And sort of one of my biggest regrets over the last 10 years since then is that I didn't, that I haven't so uh, aggressively enough tried to qualify again. I've done the t trials twice since then. Uh, the first time I injured myself in my second match and was unable to continue, but I missed a lot of trials. I never made it back. To, I haven't made it back to ADCC and that's still the goal for me. Uh, and I missed a lot of trials because maybe I didn't prioritize it as much as I should have. You know, I was given other opportunities. I think maybe one of the things... Oh, <sighs> maybe even qualifying for ADCC so young in my competition career might have even have been a negative, you know, where, and, and this is the first time I'm really thinking about it and breaking it down like that, because to be honest with you, not, you know, I do a lot of podcasts and no one's really asked me specifically about that ADCC trials and the stuff from there. So it's a really interesting take. Uh, but, you know, maybe actually that was uh, maybe not a positive thing for my career in that it, I might have been, I was, I was given something too early and, and, and I, I don't want to say too easily because it wasn't easy. I trained really, really hard uh, to be at that level, to be able to qualify, but um, I qualified, I competed at ADCC and then, you know, I'm an ADCC vet and then you just have that on your record. Whereas maybe if I didn't, if I didn't do that so early, maybe I would have uh, tried to pursue it more aggressively in, 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 in the couple of ADCCs following. But I was given other opportunities to do things such as um, I remember one year it was a commentary. I was asked to commentate for a big, uh, there was a big, it was, they only ever run, they only ran one show because it was that big that they basically ran out of money after the first show. But I was asked that that was my first big commentary job in MMA. And I was asked to do that. Ironically, it was at the venue where the ADCC was being held that I would have tried to qualify for. It was like an ironic twist of fate. Uh, but, I, but I ended up doing that one year uh, and then another year um, on the ADCC date, I was offered quintet. And I thought, you know, it's one of those things where if I hadn't have qualified for ADCC, would I probably wouldn't have said no to quintet anyway, but I might have thought about it. But but obviously when I was off a of quintet, I jumped at the opportunity. You know, there would be absolutely nothing that would stop me from being there. So in a way, maybe, and who knows, but I'm just sort of thinking out loud that possibly getting that qualification so early in my career might have not, not taken some of the hunger out, but the hunger specifically to qualify for ADCC because I'd already done it. That's still the goal. You know, the goal for any Nogi grappler is to qualify for ADCC and, and to win or to medal at ADCC. That's still the goal for me. And um, after doing all of the other things, I've sort of reprioritized that as the main goal. I think every competitor finds that a bit tricky as well. If you surprise yourself early on and you do better than you think, I think it's just natural, like human nature to try and coast a bit or not saying you're coasting, but I know yeah. I feel it myself. I have to try and resist that urge to be satisfied because you are obviously satisfied. You know, w winning the trials for me was probably one of the best days of my life. 
but I have to try and instead of remembering back on that, yeah. I have to really, really stay on it to make sure that I can can do it again because I know that's difficult for me as well. Yeah, and you know, for example, if uh, I remember when I was first offered to do EBI and I just jumped at the opportunity and I was so excited to do it and from yourself being an EBI combat jiu-jitsu champion, if you were offered uh, the opportunity to compete at combat jiu-jitsu again at EBI, you're, you're not gonna have, you're not gonna feel the same way about doing that because you've already gone there, done that, and got the massive medallion. You know. Yeah, that's one of the trickiest things in sports is having the offensive mindset versus the defensive mindset. I think I heard Johnny Wilkinson talking about it before, that when he was younger, he was all excited and almost curious about how well can I perform on the biggest stage. But then as he got more well-known as one of the best rugby players in the world, he has more of a defensive mindset. He's saying, I just don't want to screw up. I just want to get through this. And he's almost looking forward to the end of the game. Mm. So I think it's tricky once you start to have success in certain things to try and keep keep pushing it, keep aiming higher. And yeah, that's yeah. definitely something that I try and keep an eye on myself. So I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And then... After those kind of competitions early in your careers, have you had any injuries or anything because of training a lot when you were young, competing a lot when you were young or any issues with that? I have a chronic back injury uh, that I picked up when I was 21. So just after ADCC, really, that really kind of even though I was still competing and I was still winning tournaments whilst I was dealing with that, it really hindered my training a lot. I picked up a shoulder injury a few years later about six months before my match before AJ with AJ at Polaris 2 and that really that that was really really bad and that really affected me and my training uh took definitely took me to the to the point where I was the closest to quitting jiu-jitsu that I've ever been before or since you know and and, and that was and that the, the the fact that that idea even came into my head sort of almost embarrasses me now to say it um but it was hard it was hard and I remember you know I remember and it's hard to remember because I feel like it's it's such an alien concept to me. But I remember leaving every single training session, every single one, like depressed, you know, down, yeah, which is not the opposite of how you should feel after training. And I just remember because my arm was jacked. Uh, basically, I tore my labrum. And um, and what would happen is about three or four minutes into rolling, it would become inflamed and that inflammation would basically, my arm would basically switch off. You imagine you got like a, if you're a robot and there's an off button for the arm, my arm would switch off. And and to the point that sometimes it would be, a, you know, stick your hand in the gear and roll with one hand. For weeks at a time, I rolled just literally with one hand, not even trying to use the second hand because it would be, because I knew that it was just going to die and it was going to be useless. But then you're trying to train for something like, a, you know, the biggest match in my career that at that point, which was the AJ match, um, and I'd already, I, so I mentioned briefly, I injured my, tore my knee at the ADCC trials. I was meant to compete against AJ at the first Polaris and I had to pull out because I tore my knee. Then he competed against Oli Geddes and then I was re-offered the match at the second Polaris and I jumped to the opportunity, you know, Polaris was so exciting, so new and the match was really, you know, uh, AJ was a super well-known high-level competitor and I, you know, had never been had the opportunity to compete on someone like that, especially on a show. And then I had this really bad shoulder issue, but I was like, I cannot, if I turn this down, you turn it down once, it's okay. You turn it down twice, you don't get a third shot. So um, 
the training for that tournament was horrible. It was really horrible. Um, I felt like I was getting nowhere. I, you know, I had a 15 minute match and I could not roll for more than five minutes at a time. You know, I just could not roll for more than five minutes. At a time. And I was rolling badly. I remember my guys, uh, my training partners were really worried, really worried for me in that fight. Um, because they'd seen, they'd seen all of the struggle that I'd been through on the mats beforehand. And they, you, you know, I was not in any condition to compete, to be honest with you. You know, my, my, my shoulder was essentially hanging on by a thread, <laughs> essentially, and uh, almost literally. Um, and it was, it was in a really bad way. And I remember in the, the week before the tournament, I had to get a massage every single day. One of my very good friends is a really good sports masseuse. And I had a massage every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every single day that week to try and get the best out of my shoulder that I could. And of course, the, the match actually happens and the adrenaline kicks in and the crowd are going crazy and you forget all about it. And I'm able to have what what would, you know, what, what would definitely be the biggest, uh, the the biggest moment of my career by far to this day the biggest moment of my career in terms of uh the popularity that i got from it every single person that i meet says i first saw you well exception of you, you said you first saw me at adcc but everyone else apart from you tom every single person i saw your match against aj that is the one that, that sort of introduced me to the world really so uh like i was able to do it and then after that i had surgery to reattach my shoulder that nearly sounds more debilitating than the lower back how how have you dealt with that? Or maybe any bit of advice for anyone who's dealing with that as well? Because it's definitely pretty common in the jiu-jitsu world. Oh, yeah. And it's common in the world world as well. You know, the, the lower back, uh, chronic lower back pain is sort of like an epidemic in the world. Um, it, it really, a lot of people get that. I injured my back when I was about, when I was 21, I believe. And um, it's been a journey ever since. And it's a journey that I'm still on. It's something that I... Uh, will almost certainly live with for the rest of my life in some way or another. Um, what I can say is that it's significantly better now than it's ever been. Uh, but it was a very long journey. So when I first did it, it was very, very bad, as usually happens, the, the, the acute phases of these sort of injuries. The first couple of years, or the first year is sort of a journey. I guess the first six months to a year is about finding out what is wrong with you. Uh, I went to GP and they did some scans and they said, um, oh, it's a bulging disc. Leave it for a couple of months. It will go back. I say, doc, I've already had it for six months. You know, what you're telling me is rubbish. You're telling me that in another month it will be fine. I've had it for six months already. It's not getting better. Then I saw another doctor. Uh, he did a CAT scan on my back and uh, and revealed that I have a crack in one of my vertebrae. And he said, uh, that, 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 was a, that was a tough one. What you want to hear is, oh, you know, uh, this muscle's bad and I'm going to poke it with, I don't know, one of my magical instruments and then it's going to be healed. And when, when you get something like it was, you have a, a crack in your spine and uh, it will never heal because um, the growth plates at this point are fused. Bone on bone isn't going to heal together. Uh, what and what he wanted to do was they wanted to put a rod through it basically they wanted to uh, connect the two broken parts and they said there's a one in 10 chance so we're not talking about a one in a thousand one in a hundred ten thousand you get with a lot of he said there's a one in 10 chance 10 percent chance that the screw or the bolt wouldn't take and if the bolt didn't take you can't have it rattling around in your spine we'll have to fuse your spine 
And anyone knows, few spine, no more jujitsu, you're done. And definitely no more competing at a high level. That was hard. That was tough. That was the moment that you hear everyone, oh, the doctor said I, you know, I, I'll never make it. And then you push for it anyway. So I didn't want to get the surgery done. And thankfully, I didn't get it done. And then I, you know, let a year down the line, I saw another doctor and it was a different diagnosis as well. So, you know, the first six months, what well, I don't want to go too far down that route, but, but the first sort of six months to a year, what is going on? And then the year to the year and a half, two years, it's what can I do? You know, not what can I do? What can I do? Or what can I do in avoiding those things? So I started to learn that um, certain things flared it up. Certain things didn't flare it up. And basically, I would push towards the things that didn't hurt and pull backwards from the things that did hurt. So basically, the main thing that hurt was um, any hinging of the, of the hips. So um, I usually pass guard uh, from standing on my feet, like bent over. If I did that for a little bit too long, that would be no good. Wrestling was out of the question. I tried wrestling a free, few times. It was one of the reasons why I never was able to work on my wrestling for the majority of my middle part of my career because any bent over position, very, very bad pain. It's also what happened in a lot of my matches that would be exacerbated with the adrenaline and sort of you tense up more, you tend to tense up more, whatever it is when you're competing and my back would get really bad when I compete. Uh, stuff like standing up for a long period of time, say more than five or 10 minutes could be really bad. And walking for more than five or 10 minutes could be really bad as well. So, it, 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 you know, it really did affect my life a lot. Uh, the walking, what I found, and I definitely think that uh, exposure therapy is very important for these sort of things. When you can't do something, it scares you to do it. So you don't do it. So you get worse at doing it. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle. With the walking thing, I was never big into walking. But at this point now, I couldn't walk for more than five, 10 minutes. You know, is that the question? I got a dog. And I started having to walk my dog and being forced to go for 20 minute, 30 minute, 40 minute walks healed my back. Now I'm not scared having to go for a walk for two hours or three hours. I can do that. No problem. Um, so that was just working up to it and sort of pushing it to the limit, but not going past that limit. And that's definitely a big lesson for injuries. Um, and then definitely what I'd say was the biggest a huge improvement that I've had over the last couple of years to the point now where I say that I am co almost completely functional, way more than I was. So we're talking that I've had the injury for ten, uh, almost 10 years. So eight or nine years I've had this injury. I'd say for the first five years, six years, I was at limited functionality. Uh, and the last couple of years is way better now. And that is from doing stuff that you would think would be terrible for your back, which is stone lifting and heavy sandbag lifting stuff that you look at and you go, that is the way that you break your back. And I look at that and go, that is the way, literally the way that I fix my back. And my back is now I can do stuff that I honestly could not have dreamt of doing uh, five years ago. Yeah, it's funny. It, it goes back to that thing you were saying about that the exposure to it is actually important. Because I remember recently even I was reading a bit about some study from, I think, Duke University. And it was about where everyone gets the ideas that when you're squatting, don't let your knee go in front of your toe because it puts more pressure on your knee. And then they say, oh, it puts more pressure on your knee. Don't do it. Instead of, oh, it puts more pressure on your knee. Brilliant. We'll build up to it and then we'll gradually add weight and then we'll our knees will be strong as fuck. Exactly. You know, and there's, exactly. there's a lot of things like that. Don't round your back. 
that's the same thing. You know, it's the same thing with the sandbag and the stone lifting. Don't round your back. Absolutely right. With with the with the knee stuff, you know, you've got uh, some, a guy who's getting very, very popular these days is knees over toe guy, which is literally based his entire branding around the idea. And it's something that I've been doing a lot more as well. Squatting is one thing that I've always been able to do when I got really good at because it was one of the only things that I could do because I had good hip mobility where I could squat with no hinge. So there was no bending forward. So I could squat a lot. So I got really good at squatting when I, when I couldn't do anything else, basically. Um, and uh, now, yeah, you're absolutely right. People avoid risky positions because they're risky. But what you actually want to do is be more competent in risky positions. And that makes it less risky. So you look at something like you're saying with knees over toes or rounded back when you lift in, when you're grappling, how are you going to stop yourself from doing these things? How are you going to shoot a takedown? You know, you, your knee could not come more over your toe when you shoot a, a, take, a takedown, right? And what about when you're picking someone off the ground or you're doing certain movements? Your back is not going to be straight. It's going to be rounded. So in order to bulletproof yourself or protect yourself, you need to be strong in those positions that would be, if you hadn't trained them, risky. And then going to, because most of the injuries that I see in jiu-jitsu related to lower back, it's from doing deadlifting or CrossFit. And it's more about they're deadlifting too heavy with bad technique or doing CrossFit and you're just doing, I don't know, something stupid like 100 deadlifts in a minute. How would you kind of modify the strength training for jiu-jitsu? Personally, it's my belief that uh, a straight bar deadlift is unnecessary and even though and that's not to say that it is inherently a dangerous exercise i do not believe in dangerous exercise anymore it's one of the biggest changes in my training philosophy from five or six years ago i do not believe in dangerous exercises there's no such thing as a dangerous exercise it could just be dangerous for you and you know you may not be strong enough to do it um so there are some things that would consider very dangerous that you'll see some people do for fun um you know you watch like a parkour guy doing a huge jump over a building dropping 10 feet and doing a roll and and you know but if i tried to do that it's dangerous but they try and do that that's just tuesday afternoon training you know so there's not a dangerous exercise it's just for individuals but i do believe with that being said i believe that the deadlift straight bar deadlift is you got to weigh up risk and reward for all of these things and i don't believe that a straight bar deadlift uh, meets that risk reward ratio sufficiently for me to recommend anyone doing it I, th I feel like there's so many alternatives that may be better especially not going for really really heavy doing a trap bar deadlift for example you want to pick up something really heavy off the ground that you're, you're almost certainly not going to hurt your lower back trap bar deadlift is, is definitely a good alternative uh, and then yeah doing crossfit doing something you know crossfit which is like the highest injury rate of any sport in the world uh, just be very 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 careful but uh, i think they're trying to injure themselves half the time well do you know what crossfit <laughs> is uh you you know you say it as a joke but it's not really and crossfit is sort of built around this attitude of toughness and endurance and like no pain no gain it's really built off of that philosophy and when you ingrain that philosophy and mentality into the 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 sports culture then what you are essentially breeding is um, 
is, is, is a propensity to be injured. And to be honest with you, it's actually something that I've thought about. I was speaking to someone, I did an interview a few weeks ago and we were talking about my injuries and I remember, yes, I was injured on and off, but I was, my body was in a bad state when I was in my mid twenties, 22, what, 22, 23, 24, 25. My body was not healthy. It was strong. It performed well, but it wasn't healthy. And I look at that now and I go, that's foolish. You know, health cannot be devoid of strength. Strength cannot be devoid. You know, these two things go together. If you want to be strong, you've got to be healthy. You know, really strong. Not just like I can bench a lot strong, but if you want to, you know, I, I, I take a much more holistic pro approach to health and performance as a li thing linked together. And I remember when I was, um, when I was banged up and I, I was in my 20, you know, mid 20s and I remember almost wearing it like a badge of honor. You know, I was like, my body is fucked up because I train really hard, you know, and I was proud of it. And it's a stupid attitude to have. And I actually, and it's not an attitude that I have anymore. It's very, very different. I don't want to be injured. I want to move freely. I want to move pain free on the mats, off the mats, morning, evening, every day. I want to move freely, comfortable, pain free. That's the goal. And then be able to train as hard as I can whilst working within that parameter. And I feel like there is a, um, I think that there is that culture. There is that, that misguided um, mentality in jujitsu as well. And with professional athletes at the top of their field, okay. I might not agree with it. I don't think it's the best thing for longevity or for long-term health. But if a professional athlete who is training twice a day, three times a day is pushing their body to the limit and they're, you know, they're getting some nasty wear and tear in the process, then okay, that's your choice to do. And I understand it, but I'm not talking about professional athletes. I'm talking about your average white, blue, purple, you know, brown and black belts, but maybe older guys, amateurs, they are getting not paid at all. They have full-time jobs outside of their hobby of jiu-jitsu and they get injured and they have injuries, be it their fingers, their hands, their elbows, their knees, their shoulders. They get all of these ailments and they wear them as a badge of honor and they put some tape around them and they carry on. I believe that people need to change this attitude. If you are a hobbyist, you want to be doing this for as long as you can, having to tape your elbows, knees, shoulders, fingers at the beginning of every single session this is not how you're meant to live. This is not how you're going to be able to do this sport for as long as you'd be able to do it if you actually take care of your body. So it's something that it's, it's a mentality change that I have gone through where I'm no longer proud of dysfunction in my body, but I am embarrassed by dysfunction in my body and I strive for for functionality. And I believe it's something that a lot of people, uh, especially amateurs who are hobbyist jujitsu people need to maybe start thinking about look after your body, because if your body is banged up, you're not going to be able to grapple as effectively as if you're healthy. And I wanted to get onto as well, grip training, especially because I know you have a lot of really interesting training. I've seen you doing stuff with sandbags a lot, lifting stones, all these kind of things. But the grip training I find really interesting because there's loads of different variations of it that i've seen you do what modifications have you made to your grip training that you think would benefit other people a lot you know you don't need to be taught 
told how important grip is in jiu-jitsu because every time you lose that position you go damn it if only my hands were a little bit stronger but you know the big mistake with grip training is people they have a very simplistic view of grip training they open their hand they close their hand and they that is that range of motion you know as if you're you're just crushing something in your hand that is what they believe grip to be in its entirety but of course grip you know that 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 is as specific as saying uh body training you know, and saying, and you do a deadlift and you say that is body training. No, that is one type of body training. Uh, so it's the same way that, 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 that what you're talking about, that closing your hand from an open position would be what we refer to in, in grip as crush. And then you have support and you have pinch and you have, you know, flexion, extension, deviation, supination, all of these, you know, the, the, the hand, forearm, fingers, thumb, very, very complex mechanisms. Obviously, that you know, the, the, these are some of the most intricate pieces of equipment that human beings, you know, you know, I, I'd actually uh, be pretty confident to say that they are the absolute most intricate, most complex, and most advanced pieces of anatomy that humans have on their body. Because these things, these hands, these fingers, these thumbs, all of these things, the wrist, this is what allows us to do everything that we do in day-to-day -day life. It allows us to use and create all the tools and manipulate things and type and drive and move and everything. The training for someone who does no gi and the training for the, someone who does gi when it comes to grip training, it's going to be very different because that is the biggest difference between the two, right? It's how you actually use your hands. So I don't do a lot of grip training that would be more uh, relevant for a gi grappler. I do more grip training that would be more relevant for a no-gi grappler. So that's actually, you know, the way that I view grip is not just the hand and fingers. It's everything from the shoulder down. The entire arm is grip. So a lot of flexion in the wrist, a lot of cupping positions, hooking positions for your underhooks, for your for your palm to palm. These positions here are the positions that I train a lot more and the positions where I'm strongest. And when I mentioned earlier about training uh sort of arm wrestling techniques that is where arm wrestlers are stronger as well and you know you get a good arm wrestler and teach them some good jiu-jitsu they're going to be a bit of a nightmare so uh training uh flexion uh especially flexion this hooking position and cupping position in the hands and in the forearms and in the wrists i felt a huge difference when i started doing that and i still continue to feel the benefit from it I wanted to touch on your podcast as well, because for me, yeah. this has been one of the most enjoyable podcasts to listen to the last few years in the jiu-jitsu world. And there's a lot of great stuff in it about the history of UK jiu-jitsu. What are kind of some surprising guests that you had? Maybe not surprising, but someone that's very interesting that you weren't expecting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I've done, uh, I think I'm on episode 85 or something at the moment and yeah you know I've, I've been very fortunate and it has become a bit of a documentation on uh uk brazilian jiu-jitsu history and i have got some people from other parts of the world but obviously mainly the uk um that was not on purpose that was just a natural evolution when you sit down and you talk to people who are old school uk jiu-jitsu guys and you talk to them about their history then you're going to start to create this mosaic this 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 uh this this um picture sometimes very deep in some places and they interlinked and they intersect and different people talk about you know each other and stuff like that and it's great you know and it's actually one of my a lot of people really like it just for sort of the historical aspect of it and then other people prefer sort of uh, listening to more uh, practical stuff but yeah uh, you, you know I've spoken to some really high level guys I'm just going through my going through my phone now to, to remind me I've done so many of them uh, but I have I have really spoken to a lot of people and some of them have been 
yeah, some of them have been really surprising. I'm just trying, you know, I, I, a few of them come to mind, but obviously I've spoken to some really high level guys that you expect, you know, they're always good, you know, talking to Braulio, talking to Legato, talking to, to, to Mauricio Gomez, you know, these are all incredible episodes. You know, Mauricio was sort of the main one that I wanted full stop. I'd rather have him than anyone just because at the time he was, he was so camera shy and sort of media shy. He's a lot more open and he does a lot more stuff in front of the camera now. But I remember the first time I asked him, he said, no, I don't want to do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to keep on hassling him. And thankfully his, uh, his now wife, uh, uh, Natalie was kind enough to basically coerce him into doing it with me. And, and, and I really enjoyed that. But, you know, I remember one, for example, was, um, uh, John Hegan, uh, who was actually, uh, you know, I'm always looking for, it's finding that balance between you, you either want to have someone who's high profile and people want to hear from or someone who's not high profile, but they're really interesting and they have a really good story to tell. And John was one of those people who I hadn't actually heard of. And two of his students um, who had been to some of my seminars, they said, look, our instructor's really interesting. They sent, I think they sent me an email. They mentioned it and then they sent me an email. It's really interesting. He's done this, that and this. Um, do you want to have him on? And I looked at it. I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll give it one of my favorite episodes. You know, John is such an interesting character um, and, uh, you know, really, really quite old school. Trained with the Gracie's really a long time ago. And he works in um, a juvenile correction facility for the last like 20 years. And, you know, talking about using jujitsu in a practical setting, you won't find someone probably with that much experience of hands-on using jujitsu to control people, you know, not in a, not in a controlled environment in the real world, you know, having to wrestle with these kids, uh, getting out of line for 20 years and sort of like, you know, you figure out, I can't even remember what he said it was, but it was like Kimura grip takedown and then like knee on belly. Like that's the one every single time, something like that. But yeah, I've had some really interesting people on and, uh, you know, obviously mostly jujitsu and MMA and stuff like that. And, you know, for me, it's not just about uh, chatting to interesting people, but trying to get interesting stuff out of them and trying to, you know, that that is the that is the job of, of a host or the job that I attempt to do as a host, which is to get as deep as I can and draw out as much stuff as I can. You know, I've had a few where, um, you know, I remember the episode first that springs to mind when I was uh, talking to Mark Goddard, obviously Mark, a very well-known guy, the pretty much the top MMA referee in the world, also an old school UK MMA fighter uh, and um, also a black belt under Braulio. I had a really great discussion with him and um, remember him opening up on some stuff that I, he said afterwards, he said, you know, I've never, never spoken to anyone, anyone about this before. And actually it was quite almost a therapy session for him. And, and, and you do find that with a few people, which is if you can make them comfortable um, enough to open up a little bit, it can actually be um, quite cathartic for people that, because, you know, actually doing a podcast for me, I've done so many you know, I've been a guest on a lot of podcasts as well, which I'm always thankful for. But really, it's been a, you know, I'd say in in the hundreds as just a guest uh, it is a lot. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there who who have not been spoken to, you know, and, you, you, you know, on a really deep level. And you actually think about it. How often are, do someone sit in front of you and really have a conversation about you and how you think, how you tick, your life? for two or three hours, 
you know, it's it's actually a rare um it's a rare it is. Uh, event to happen to some people. And sometimes when you're talking about the ideas, you're talking to yourself as much as you are talking to the other person. Sort of the art of conversation is something that we're missing and I believe that that is something that is very human where we talk and we exchange ideas and concepts and discussions and we challenge each other and we come to find our differences and we come to find the things that we agree on and you know you know sometimes it's over the computer and sometimes it's in person but it's always very focused and this is something that you don't get a lot and it could teach you lessons about actually how to live in your day-to-day you know make sure that you don't have, you know, you're not picking up your phone while someone's trying to talk to you or you're not watching TV while someone's trying to talk to you. And actually, uh, you know, it's uh, almost reviving something that is a little bit lost to humans, which is uh, having a, a real deep, proper conversation. There's so much technology used in making and getting the podcast out there and listening to them. But at the same time, it's almost an antidote to all the technology that we have all the time it's almost like a break or going back old school the same way you go back old school with those old exercises lifting stones and everything there's definitely a lot of value in some of the old school things that have been thrown out of the way for the new modern shiny things absolutely and uh yeah you're right you know it's something that i believe in it's something that i try to live my life by and and be that new does not always mean better and yeah, you know, for me personally, I am really interested in history. I'm especially interested in mythology and ancient literature and um, and, and with my training methods, a lot of them, you know, some of them are what you would consider ancient with thousands of years old. And, uh, you know, stuff like stone lifting is, is, is pretty much the oldest form of strength training you can do. Um, I study sometimes, uh, you know, the sort of strength training documentation that we still have from ancient rome uh, and the stuff they were doing with the gladiators that can be really interesting you know the uh, club swinging meals you know old persian iranian indian strength training methods from their warrior classes you know we've for for for, for many many thousands of years we've had warrior classes or warrior societies and warriors want to be strong and how do they become strong and then stuff from even as early uh as far back as you know 100 years ago technology and 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 things have made a very very fast um leap of uh of, of progression and we've lost some exercises and some styles of training that were very popular even 100 years ago that are unheard of now um i really do try and live by the bruce lee philosophy of of you know absorb what is useful and discard what is not and before i let you go i was talking to a few people at the gym today i was saying oh i'm chatting to Dan in a while, any questions? And everyone asked the same couple of questions. They were saying, why the raspberry ape (laughs) and why the denim? (laughs) And I was like, lads, is that all you want to know? But apparently that's that's what everyone wants to know, Dan. (laughs) Uh, So enlighten us. The two things where I, the fake answers are so much more interesting than real answers. But there's certain exercises that I won't wear denim for. There's certain exercises mm. that I will wear denim for. Um, and I do I think that it makes you stronger? I absolutely do. It definitely, you know, definitely makes me stronger. Well, there you have it. There's strength in the denim. Thanks a million, Dan, for coming on the show. It was really great chatting to you now today. I appreciate the time. My absolute pleasure. It's uh, great to chat to you and it's good to see what you're doing with the podcast. I wish you all the best with everything that you're doing, your training. Thanks, Dan.
Big thanks to Dan for coming on the show. It was really interesting to have the mic turned around on him for once and hear his take on some of the more interesting guests he's had on his podcast, as well as all the great information he shared about strength conditioning, grip training, as well as some insights into his early career in qualifying for ADCC and representing the UK on the biggest stage in the sport. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, Slánagas Bannacht. Thank you.